So we're going to be continuing with our uh, our series in Philippians today. Um, looks like a summer crowd. That's okay. We've got people who are selling their homes. We've got people who have the stomach flu. We have people who are going to the airport. And on top of all of that, it is daylight savings. It's the day that everybody springs forward and loses an hour of sleep. And some people don't do too well with that. That's okay. This is all going online. So we'll have a pop quiz on it all next uh, next week. Uh, for those who weren't here today, I know you're listening online. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it, it's always interesting to, uh, to, to learn about new biblical characters, people that we haven't really studied uh, before. The fact is that there are so many people that get mentioned kind of in passing throughout you know, Paul's epistles in, in the New Testament. I mean, if you look at the end of Romans, he just lists off name after name after name after name. We don't know a whole lot about those people. But when you come across uh, new people, people that you're not familiar with, people that uh, aren't really... Um, an important or, or a main character in the story, in the narrative of the New Testament. It's kind of a reminder that letters like this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, uh, it, it was a real letter. And it was written to real people who were dealing with real issues. Uh, in our passage today, we're going to learn about two men, uh, one of whom we actually know quite a bit based on the New Testament, and one of whom we know next to nothing, virtually nothing. In the verses that have led us to our passage at hand, Paul has talked about how even though he was facing the real possibility of martyrdom, uh, the real possibility of death for, uh, for sharing the gospel, for spreading the gospel, he was nevertheless rejoicing because he knew, as he looked back on his life, he knew that it wasn't all in vain. He knew that it wasn't all for nothing. He had poured out his life. For the sake of serving others, he hadn't lived for nothing. His life had not been in vain. He'd lived, in fact, for the only thing that ultimately matters, which is the glory of God through the spreading of the gospel. And I would argue that it would be impossible for somebody to take a look at what we know about Paul's life and come to the honest conclusion that he was never a risk taker. Has anybody ever thought this guy, this guy is so, he's got such a boring life. This guy just stays in his comfort zone. No, Paul is a, a major, major risk taker. In fact, I don't know any, if anybody in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, had a more adventurous life than Paul did. He was going from one place to another to another. And of course, you know, you have uh, 40 or so years all compacted into 28 chapters and acts. And uh, it's not until chapter nine that Paul has his conversion. So really you have what, 19 chapters uh, spanning 40 years or so, 30, 40 years. Uh, but he was always on the go and he wasn't afraid to take risks. And I believe that uh, that's partially at least because he realized that this world and the things in this world are not to be held on to. That this world isn't his home, and you know, the, the things in this world just come and go. By the time his life was almost over, he'd learned a really important lesson, and that is to cling to nothing but Jesus. Cling to nothing but Jesus. He wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. He said, We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. So knowing that nothing in this world is worth pursuing more than Jesus, Paul lived 
for the things that matter in eternity, the things that matter to God. And Paul was going to make the most of the time that he had in this life, and that has to involve taking risks, stepping outside of our comfort zone. And one of the hardest risks for any of us to make, if we're being honest, is investing in people. Investing in people. When we invest in people, there is always the chance that they're not going to want us. There's always a chance they're not going to like us. There's always a chance that in the end, ultimately, we'll somehow feel burned or cheated or betrayed in some way. And Paul knew what that was all about. He, He absolutely experienced that. Some of the final words that we have from his pen record the fact that several people he had invested his precious time in had abandoned him in his final hour. He tells Timothy in Second Timothy chapter four verses nine and ten. He says, "Do your best to come to me soon, for Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me, and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia." Now we can assume that Crescens and Titus, because uh, he doesn't he doesn't really dog them or anything. He doesn't say anything negative about them, so we can kind of assume that you know they had gone off to do ministry work. Uh, these were men who, who still had good reputations, especially we know Titus still had a good reputation. Uh, but Demos, apparently he had abandoned Paul and he went to Thessalonica to pursue worldly treasure. And you get the sense, when you read this, you get the sense that Paul is kind of heartbroken about that. He's hurt. He feels burned, especially by Demos. And so he goes on to write, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's what he writes in verse 14. And then in verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. This is a guy who invested his life in a lot of people, and not one came to stand by him at the end. And again, we get the sense that Paul, he's hurt, he's feeling burned, he's feeling abandoned by all these people that he's invested his life in. And so we get the, we get the idea, you know, it, okay, relationships are risky. They're risky, but Paul never used that as an excuse to not pour out his life for the sake of serving and discipling others. And because of that, he was able to find plenty of reasons to rejoice, even when the going got tough even when he didn't know if he was going to live or die, he could still rejoice. The fact that relationships are risky is not an excuse to not invest in people because the fact of the matter is that obedience to God is risky business. God will call you to do things that that you might not be entirely comfortable with sometimes. Obedience to God can be risky business. The person who plays it safe and refuses to leave their comfort zone, they just cling to the things that keep them comfortable. It's just an illusion of safety and comfort. That's really all it is. It's an illusion. Now, comfort isn't a bad thing necessarily. It's not an ungodly thing necessarily. Sometimes the good shepherd leads us beside still waters. We know that much. The principle is don't cling to comfort because it can so easily become an idol. The reality is that this attitude where we're just going to stay in our comfort zone at all costs will often lead us into disobedience because comfort can so easily become a desire of the flesh. When God's calling us to go someplace else, 
The Spirit's leading us to go someplace else. And the flesh says, oh man, I just want to stay right here. So taking risks for Jesus is risky. It is risky. It can be dangerous. It can cost us dearly sometimes. But not taking risks for Jesus can be even more dangerous. Now as we come to the closing passage of chapter 2 here in Philippians, we're introduced once again to, to Timothy. Timothy is one of the guys that Paul invested a lot of his life in. Remember, Timothy was actually mentioned back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, as being present with Paul in the opening sentence of this letter. So we go on to read here, in verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we read this. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you too, to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. See, the, the relationship between Paul and Timothy was, was special. It was, it was close. These guys were good, good friends. They were tight. Timothy was like a son to Paul, and Paul had invested years of his life, at least 10 years of his life, discipling Timothy. Now remember that Paul, as he writes this, he's, he's in chains in Rome. He's chained up to a Roman guard, and so he can't do anything. He wants to go see the Philippians himself. But he can't. He's, he's imprisoned. So if he can't, he indicates here that he hoped to send the person who was closest to him, and that is Timothy, although he wasn't ready to send Timothy just yet. He was confident that when the time did come to send Timothy, Timothy would experience great joy to see the Philippians and to see that they had resolved the conflict the division, the strife that they had been facing. And he anticipated the day that Timothy would come back to him with a positive report. And I love the reason here that Paul gives us for Timothy being the one that he would send, for, for, Paul, for Timothy being the one that he would choose to go and visit the Philippians. It's because he was the only person who was willing to go who would be so concerned about the spiritual health of the Philippians. In fact, he would be as concerned as Paul himself was. And if we were to translate verse 20 literally, it would actually say, I have no one else equally sold or equally minded. And what he means there is that there's nobody but Timothy who resembles Paul, that Paul knows anyway. There's nobody who resembles him in his concern for the welfare of other Christians. Now keep in mind how much Paul loved Timothy. He, he loved him like a son. He loved him like a brother. He loved him like a friend. I mean, the entire church in Rome had practically abandoned Paul, but Timothy, Timothy was the one to stand by him. And here's Paul who knows that he could be dying soon and he's ready to send his best friend, his most beloved co-worker to these people. Let me ask you this. Does Paul need Timothy? He wants him there, that's for sure. But does he need him? I think it's safe to say that in a sense he does need Timothy there. He needs Timothy there to minister to him, to, to, to lift his spirits to, and, and to deliver messages. He, he needs Timothy there for, for companionship. He needs Timothy there to, to, to have somebody there to pray with and to pray for him when he's too weak to pray. But he's willing. This is, this is the point. He, he's willing to neglect his own needs for the needs of others because they might have a greater need for Timothy than he himself does. 
So what we see here in light of all this is that Paul is willing to practice the very thing that he's been preaching. Humility. Putting others before yourself. Remember, he wrote back in verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important, more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Is Paul doing that? Absolutely. Paul is going to practice what he's preaching. He's more than willing to do it. And of course, right after uh, Paul told us, uh, give us those instructions, he discussed how Jesus was the perfect model of those principles. But now Paul's saying that this is how the Christian life is supposed to work. This is how a healthy church works. You put others before yourself. He's putting his money where his mouth is. He's not just considering his own interests or his own needs or his own preferences. He's also considering the interests, needs, and preferences of these people who need some help, the Philippians. And so we need to understand that Timothy's concern for the spiritual health of these Christian Philippians is a concern that mirrors the concern that Jesus has for his own people as well. He continues writing in verse 21 here. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. See, it's just, it's so easy and it's natural for us to to pursue our own interests, the things that we want, our desires, our preferences. It's so easy and so natural for us to go that route. That's what comes naturally to us. That's where the flesh leads us. But that kind of attitude will lead to a legacy of selfishness. Think about this guy, uh, Demas, that that he was talking about in 2 Timothy, who, who was just mentioned at the end of his second letter to Timothy. We know nothing about that guy, except for the fact that he abandoned the faith and he abandoned Paul for the sake of his love of the world. In the parable of the seed sower, Jesus tells us that some seed will fall among the thorns. And he goes on to explain that these seeds that fall among the thorns represent those who, quote, hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's from Mark chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. See, these are people who who heard the gospel message and they were joyful about it on a, on a surface level. They, they accepted it, but they refused to make it the number one priority in their lives. And as a result, they remain unfruitful. They remain unregenerate. These are false conversions that Paul's talk, or that, that Jesus was talking about. And Paul apparently saw quite a few people who were like that in his time. But he knew that such was not the case with Timothy. He knew that Timothy wasn't, wasn't like that at all. Like Paul, Timothy was not concerned with his own interests. Timothy was not concerned with the riches of the world or anything else that this world had to offer. But he was concerned with the things which were of interest and concern to Jesus. Now there are plenty of things that we could list off which are of, of interest and concern to Jesus. But in this context, the thing that Paul knows that Timothy, like Jesus, would feel concerned for is the spiritual health of the Christian community in Philippi. This past week, I had a discussion with a, a fellow pastor who didn't feel 
that, uh, that it's anybody else's business how anyone is running their church or what they're teaching their congregation. So if a pastor is teaching something false, well, let him teach something false. That's his business. If he's leading them in a manipulative way, let him lead them in a manipulative way. That's not our business. And so, uh, yeah, everybody else, just keep your nose out of everybody else's business was, was his mentality. But as John MacArthur so eloquently puts it, he says this, quote, pacifism has never been a pastoral option in the war for people's souls. End quote. It is impossible to love the people that Jesus died to redeem without feeling a sense of concern for their spiritual health. And that's why Paul said to the Corinthians, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's what he wrote in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. There is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. That's a heart that reflects the concern and the love that Jesus has for his churches. Now, Paul and Timothy were concerned for the spiritual welfare of churches uh, like the church in Philippi because Jesus, because Jesus is concerned for the spiritual welfare of his people. And we would expect anyone who claims to be the good shepherd to be concerned for each one of his individual sheep. And indeed, he is. Paul continues, verses 22 to 24. He says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So any day now, Paul's decision could be coming down. And he's kind of holding off for that. But what, what I want us to see here is that Timothy was like Christ. Christ-like in his selflessness. Think about this with me. He was willing, this is a parallel, he was willing to be sent by his spiritual father, Paul, to do work on Paul's behalf. He was willing to abandon any and all selfish pursuit or ambition for the sake of others. Does that sound like anybody? That's what Jesus did. So we see that Timothy is a model of selflessness, and in that regard, he's an excellent model of Christ-likeness. If the Philippians would just become a little bit more like Timothy in that regard, they'd also be growing in Christ-likeness. But here's what we need to understand. Timothy wasn't going to go and make all the... He wasn't willing to go and make all these selfless sacrifices in order that the Philippians would see how dedicated or how, how strong he was in his faith... He wouldn't go so that they could see how, how great he was in any way. That would be acting out of selfish ambition. Instead, he was willing to go, he was willing to make these selfless sacrifices because, number one, he understands how great Jesus is. And number two, he wants everybody else to understand and see how great Jesus is too. The light and the life of Jesus shines through Timothy because he's so selfless. And so Paul tells us that Timothy had proven himself. And apparently he had a reputation for that. We know that Paul had high standards when it came to people who were in ministry. His, his standards were always extremely high. So high that in fact he broke off his relationship with Barnabas for a season over John Mark's participation in their ministry together. His standards were so high that he even got in Peter's face at one point, at least one time, and rebuked him for the way that he was distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles. 
Paul had high standards for people in ministry, and that's a good thing. Having high standards for people in ministry is a good thing. And Timothy had surpassed every single one of those standards. Timothy was faithful and trustworthy. After 10 years of mentoring Timothy, Paul knew that Timothy was up for the task at hand. He had adopted, so to speak, Paul's spiritual DNA. He was as committed to loving and serving Jesus as Paul was, and he was as committed to loving and serving the church as Paul was. And I suppose this is as good a time as any to ask if you've thought about how you are influencing people for Christ. Because you are, one way or another. One way or another. We're all called to make disciples. The question is always, how do we best do that? And I would say, there's no universally right answer for everyone. It depends on a lot of factors, uh, especially your, your spiritual gifting, for example, um, also your, your, your living situation, your job, etc. But it's nevertheless something that every single one of us, if we are following Jesus, this is something that every single one of us is called to do. But I will say this much. Even though there's no necessarily right or, or wrong answer, it'll almost always involve something as simple as just living out your faith so that those who are consistently the closest to you can see what it's all about. You know what that means, by the way? Just as, a, as kind of a side note. It means you can't make disciples over the internet, says the podcasting guy. Yeah, you can't make disciples over the internet. It's something that can supplement, or you know, resources online that can supplement your discipleship, but there's got to be some type of face-to-face -face interaction with discipleship, just so we're clear. Uh, Jamie and I were recently talking about the, the possibility of streaming our services online, and we were you know, kind of talking about the pros and the cons of, of doing it, and we both kind of reached the same conclusion. Uh, while it sounds great, and you know, maybe, yeah, a lot of people would, would tune in, it would just be too tempting for many people to substitute an online experience for in-person fellowship, which is really no substitute. That, uh, that, that doesn't work. It's just not the same. Now, I understand that a lot of people get you know, nervous and, and uncomfortable when we start talking about the importance of discipleship uh, because so many people have the, this notion in their heads that uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not ready to disciple somebody. I'm not old enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not mature in my faith enough. But you know what, if, if we all, if everybody had that mentality, that attitude, there would be no disciples. Because we're all growing. None of us are bare yet. Now, part of how I disciple my own kids is to own up to my failures. As soon as I see them, and, and trust me, there are plenty. I, you know, I, I'm not pulling any punches here. There are plenty. And as soon as I recognize, man, I have messed up, I own it. I, I apologize. I own it. That's, that's one of the things that you know, is going to leave an impression on, on kids, especially while they're still living at home. And we need to understand that we are constantly leaving some type of impression on our kids as long as they are living at home especially, but even after that. And so if our walk with the Lord, let's just be honest about this, if our walk with the Lord is a secondary issue, do you think our kids are going to see firsthand 
at a young age, are they going to see the importance of making your walk with the Lord a primary issue? No. They're going to say, well, you know, mom and dad, you know, it's not a primary issue for them. It's not a primary uh, thing in their lives. So, so why should it be for me? And I, I understand how that is. That, that's something that I struggle with as well. I've got to show my kids that it's my top priority because I want them to have that as their top priority as well. Our kids, are, and, and anyone, basically, anybody who's, who's close to us, have a pretty good idea of what's going on behind the curtain in Oz, so to speak, if you know what I mean. And so we've got to demonstrate this authentic love and commitment and obedience to the Lord. And the only way that we can truly demonstrate that is to cultivate it over and over again in our own hearts. The only way to show them an authentic faith is to have an authentic faith. And even if you're not a biological parent, you can always be a parent in the faith to someone. That's how Paul describes his relationship with Timothy. They'd spent a lot of time together, at least 10 years at this point, and Paul had invested heavily in Timothy's life. He'd allowed Timothy to get close enough to look behind the curtains. He'd allowed Timothy to, to get close enough to see that Paul's faith was, was for real. It was legitimate. It was his top priority. And ultimately, that, that's what discipleship is all about. And so before we move on, let me just simply challenge uh, each of you to consider what kind of a, a spiritual imprint you're leaving on those who are consistently closest to you as you go about your daily routine. Where did Timothy learn how to be so Christ-like in his selflessness? Where did he learn to be so concerned about other Christians? He learned it from Paul through the power, through the, the guiding of the Holy Spirit working in him. So we know that Timothy can't go just yet because Paul is awaiting the verdict. He, he's waiting to see what's going to happen with him. But, but Paul's not holding on to him like this. Paul's holding on to him like this. He knows that, that his time may be coming. And so he's probably told Timothy, I would imagine, you know, if, if my time comes and they just kill me, go. You know, go, go, to, the, go to the Philippians. But time was, the time was not quite right for Timothy to go and visit the Philippians. Um, although we can be sure that if Paul was not in these circumstances, if it was anything less pressing than his life on the line, uh, he would have sent Timothy uh, in a heartbeat. There was, however, someone else that Paul had in mind, someone who knew the Philippians and could do what Paul at the time was incapable of doing, being that he was uh, imprisoned. So he continues and he introduces us to a new person here in verse 25, a man named Epaphroditus. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Man, Epaphroditus, this is one of those people we, we know very, very, very little about. In fact, he's never mentioned anywhere in the Bible outside of uh, Philippians. In verse four, or chapter 4, verse 18, we see that uh, Epaphroditus is actually the guy that the, the Philippians had sent with a gift for Paul. They had sent him to minister to Paul on their behalf. So it's possible, if not likely, that, that this guy Epaphroditus was uh, an elder at the church in Philippi. Uh, but regardless, you know, whatever the case, the Philippians knew him. They, they trusted Epaphroditus uh, as evidenced by the fact that they, uh, they sent him on the road, uh, trusting him to safely deliver their financial gift 
to Paul. I mean, you don't send money with somebody that you don't know and you don't trust. So they knew and they trusted Epaphroditus. But Paul is not simply sending him home. He's not saying, okay, well, your, your time here is done. I'm, I'm sending you back home. Rather, when we consider four words that Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus, we'll catch a glimpse of the type of man that he was, and we'll see uh, the primary reason that Paul was willing to send him. Uh, it'll become evident to us if, as we look at these, these four descriptive words. First, Paul refers to him as a brother. Now, Paul had probably never met Epaphroditus before he had come to deliver this gift to Paul. He's never mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, He'd probably become a Christian under uh, the the established leadership at the church in Philippi. And yet Paul refers to him as a brother, referring to the fact that they have a common source of life. They 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 share a common source of life in Christ Jesus. Having ministered to Paul, spent time ministering to Paul, Paul had a chance to look behind the curtain. He had a chance to see the heart, to see the faith, to see the fruit and the commitment and the obedience that was coming from the life of Epaphroditus. And if Paul had any doubt whatsoever regarding the legitimacy of Epaphroditus' faith, we can be sure that he would not have referred to him as a brother and that he would not have uh, been willing to send him off on his behalf to minister to the Philippian church. So the first thing he calls him is brother. Secondly, he refers to him as a fellow worker. And the Greek word that, this, uh, that we see in the Greek text, it's interesting, it's synergos. Synergos, and that should sound a lot like the English word synergy, which is defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary as, quote, the increased effectiveness that results when two or more people or businesses work together. So you get, you know, A and B, and they're both pretty good at what they do. You put them together, and there's this dynamic. They make each other better. They shared common goals and interests, and they made each other better at the things that they did. They made each other better at ministry. Thirdly, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as a fellow soldier. And you know, we, we con- we, we're constantly in a spiritual battle. We, we don't keep that at the front of our minds because it's a war that we can't see. But the reality is we are constantly engaged in a spiritual battle And there is no place like being in the trenches in ministry. You know, when when you're engaged in in physical combat, in a physical war, your best friend is the soldier who stands next to you. You encourage one another. You challenge and you motivate one another. You lift one another's spirits when the other is feeling low. And it's no different in the trenches of ministry. It's a lonely place to be. You feel vulnerable, you feel insecure, you feel inadequate, and and all those feelings are constantly coming at you. And it's wonderful to know that there are fellow soldiers in the trenches with us to encourage us, to challenge us, to motivate us, to make us better at what we do. And Paul had someone who could be that type of person for him in Epaphroditus. Fourth and finally, Paul refers to him as your messenger and minister. The, the Greek word for messenger really is ambassador. Uh, it implies that he, he represents somebody else. In this case, he represented the Philippians, but he also, in a sense, represents Jesus. Because Jesus uses his people, 
to serve and minister to his people. And that requires a steadfast commitment to, here's that word again, selflessness. It requires a commitment to selflessness. That's the type of man Epaphroditus was. That's why Paul was desiring to send him to the Philippians. And what's amazing to me is that we can know all these things. We can know so much about someone like Epaphroditus who's mentioned only in passing in God's Word. But we see that he, like Timothy, was a selfless servant of others. And that got me thinking. You know, what if, what if I was in Epaphroditus' shoes or, or, or Timothy's shoes and, and I had been near Paul and you know, spent time with him? How, how would he describe me? Or better yet, how would God describe me? Uh, that's, that's really what, uh, what, when the rubber hits the road, that's really the question. See, we tend to focus on, on the negative things. You know, I might be tempted to think that God would look at me and say, man, you are one arrogant dude. You, you are an intellectual snob. Uh, you are a rebel. You are a, a, a dirtbag. You're, you're double-minded. You're duplicitous. All these things. But I think that when God looks at us through the blood of Christ, I don't think he gets as hung up on our weaknesses as we do. He sees us, his word tells us, he sees us as his beloved people whom he sent his only son, Jesus, to redeem. He sees us and he loves us as his children. Now, most Christians know that God loves them, but they, they know this. They, they know that God loves them the way that somebody who has read all the books in the world on swimming but has never set foot in a pool knows about swimming. That's how it is for a lot of Christians. Do we, we need to experience it. We need to trust it and dive into it and understand that it's there. That He's not just going to give up on us. He knows our faults. He knows our failures. We can know that He loves us in spite of all those things. Now, do we deserve His love? That's another question. No, we don't deserve His love. We've done nothing to earn it. We're brought into His kingdom by grace, by trusting in Jesus, by trusting in the Son that He sent for the sake of bearing His wrath against sin. And yet we still struggle to believe that we're precious, so precious and so valuable to him and i'd say it's okay to struggle with that it's okay to 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 hold that intention and to not fully grasp it i don't know if we can fully comprehend it in this life his his love for us his grace but i think that the, the more we mature in our faith and the more we come to understand just how much he loves us the more amazing we see His grace to be and His love to be, and the more we grow in our love and obedience to Him. And so the reason that Paul would send Epaphroditus to the Philippians on his behalf is because he's a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, an ambassador and minister or messenger. Uh, But there's an additional reason that we read here in verses 26 to 28. Paul continues writing, For he has been, Epaphroditus, he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. 
So apparently, we're not exactly sure how, but apparently word had somehow gotten back to the Philippians that Epaphroditus was extremely ill, extremely sick, nearly to the point of death. And then somehow Paul had received word uh, back that they had gotten word. And, uh, and Epaphroditus, when he finds this out, he's beside himself with anxiety that, that his people, the people that he came from, the Philippians, would be worried and concerned and focused on him. And Paul tells us uh, he has been distressed upon learning of what the Philippians knew about his sickness now, some would think that, you know, it, it's great to know that people are, are concerned with uh, their well-being, uh, that they've been praying for them. Uh, some, some would be, you know, just soaking that in. But apparently Epaphroditus recognized the vanity and the worthlessness of, of any type of self-interest. Surely, uh, you know, I'm sure that he appreciated their prayers while, while he was sick. No doubt about that. But he's not sick anymore. And so he doesn't want the focus to be on him. Now that he's recovered, the last thing he wanted was to be a distraction to the Philippians. The desire to not draw attention to oneself, by the way, is another great mark of selflessness. Keeping oneself out of the, out of the spotlight, out of people's uh, you know, attention as much as he can. That's, a, that's the mark of a, a really mature, selfless believer. And once again, his concern is not primarily for himself, it's for others. With Epaphroditus, it's to the point that he is distraught over the fact that people are focusing their concern and their attention on him. When in his mind, there are other matters to be dealt with. There are other things to be focusing on. And so for all of these reasons... Paul says that he's going to send Epaphroditus to them. Epaphroditus would be the one to, first of all, minister to them on Paul's behalf, since Paul can't come, uh, and in Timothy's absence as well. And uh, secondly, to deliver this letter to the Philippians. So we finish it up with the the final two verses of this chapter, verses uh, 29 and 30. Paul continues writing, So receive him. Epaphroditus, receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. What we see here, what we find here is just the ultimate picture of selflessness. As Paul tells us that Epaphroditus was willing to risk his life. He was willing to die for the work of Christ. The Greek word for risking literally means to, to, to put it out of your mind, to not regard, to not take into account, to not consider. That's how he felt about his own life in comparison to others. And that's how Jesus felt about his rightful position in heaven when it came to us. That's what Paul told us back in verse 6. So in other words, Paul is saying that Epaphroditus was willing to expose himself to some serious risk. He was willing to expose himself to the very real possibility of dying for the sake of Christ. Friends, the Christian life will involve taking risks. It is not about playing it safe. It is not about staying comfortable. John Piper wrote a great book called Risk is Right. And he writes, quote, The Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or waste your life. End quote. You see, the Christian life, it's not about 
playing things safe and, and staying tucked away in our comfort zones. Rather, it's about selflessly serving and investing in others, giving ourselves away continually. And that can't be done, at least not fully or properly, from the confines of our comfort zones. You know, if I were to preach a sermon called How to Completely Waste Your Life, I'd start with this. Don't take any risks. Play it safe. Whatever you do, you know, stay in your comfort zone as much as you possibly can. Play it safe at all costs. Stay tucked away in your comfort zone where you'll be comfy and cozy and won't disrupt or disturb anybody else. But I'm not up here to preach how to waste your life. When Jesus told the parable of the talents, he told of how two servants took great risks in order to be good stewards of what the master had entrusted with them, while a third servant refused to take any risks at all, and he was constantly condemned as being wicked. Why did the two servants take risks while the third didn't? It's because the faithful servants, the first two, had two attitudes that the wicked servant did not. Number one, the, the faithful stewards, the faithful servants, trusted in the goodness of the master. They trusted in the goodness of the master. Do, do you trust in the goodness of Jesus? He's the master. Then don't be afraid to be ambitious. Jesus didn't hang on a cross so that we could just be comfortable and ignore all the people around us not disturb them, let them stay in their comfort zones. As D.L. Moody once said, he said, quote, if God be your partner, make large plans. So if you're partnering with God, make large plans, be ambitious, take risks, trust in the master's goodness. Secondly, the faithful stewards desired to please the master. When you read this parable, you get the sense that the faithful servants could not wait for the master to return so they could show them what they had done with what they'd been entrusted with. And so the question is, do you desire to please God above everything else? So here's the challenge. Where are you taking risks for Jesus? Where is God calling you to follow him? Where and how is he calling you to obey him? Or how about this? Conversely, switching it around. How, what would you not risk? How, how would, you, would you reserve? How would you hold things back if Jesus called you to do something? Would you hold back your house? Would you risk your house? Would you risk your money? Would you risk your popularity? Would you risk your standing before others? What if the Holy Spirit were to lead you to share the gospel with a coworker or a neighbor? Would you obey what if he was leading you to, to go on your first overseas mission trip or, or, or adopt a child in his name for his sake, for his glory, or simply just get in, more involved in, in your church? Would, would you be willing to risk your time, your energy, and your resources? Are you holding what you have with a clenched hand, with a clenched fist? Or are you holding it with an open hand? Because honestly... The things of this world need to be held like this. And with Jesus, when it comes to Jesus, don't let go. Hold on. Cling to him. Are you holding on to what you've been entrusted with, with a fist or an open hand? Would you be willing to take the attitude that you hold nothing more precious and more dear than the work of Christ, both in you and through you? 
Now, the opportunities, what that looks like in a person's life, that's going to vary from, from one person to another, but the principle is the same. We live with risk for the sake of what is eternal or we waste our lives on what is temporary. Jim Elliott is probably one of the most famous missionaries of all times. These years uh, he is because there was a movie called The End of the Spear that was made about him and the team of missionaries that he, that he joined. He was also a risk taker. He abandoned all selfish pursuit and instead teamed up with four missionaries to bring the gospel message to a tribe of Ecuadorians. And these Ecuadorians were, uh, were a savage tribe of people who had intentionally avoided any and all contact with modern society. And so when these missionaries approached them to share the gospel with them, Jim Elliott and the other missionaries were all speared to death. They took a risk for Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Did they win or did they lose? Now from the world's perspective, they'd say, well, they failed. They, they died. They, they didn't accomplish their mission. But the Bible tells us that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so they gained in that sense, but their deaths were also widely publicized around the world, which led to a worldwide concerted effort to bring the gospel to this Ecuadorian tribe, which ultimately resulted in many of them coming to Christ. Years earlier, while Jim Elliott was a student in Bible college, he wrote these famous words. He said, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to save what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to save what he cannot lose. Living in obedience to Jesus means taking risks in order that he would be glorified through us. And it's the only thing worth living for. It is the only thing worth living for. It's the only thing worth clinging to. Everything else will slip through our fingers, either in this life or at the end of this life. When Jesus claims a person as his own, that person receives the Holy Spirit. Our our nature is replaced. We we go from having the the heart of stone to the, the heart of living flesh. We get a changed nature, but our personality and our individual will stay in place. And gradually, over time, he shows us the worthlessness the vanity of our ego, usually by crushing it. And he wages war against our ego, that that selfish part of us that desires to be the center of attention, and he replaces it with a desire to glorify Christ by selflessly serving others. What a beautiful, wonderful illustration, the lives of these three guys, Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. What a great illustration they are of this principle. The Christian life is ultimately about selflessly loving Jesus and glorifying him by selflessly serving him, by serving his people, regardless of the risks that may be involved. Jesus is the only thing, the only person worth living for and worth risking everything for. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are reminded that our comfort zones can be a wonderful place to rest, 
but that, Lord, You have work for us to do. And it doesn't come easy or naturally to us. And I know from personal experience, Lord, that sometimes You've got to kick us dragging and screaming. But we thank You for those times, Lord, where You teach us how vain and ultimately meaningless the ego is. We thank You, Lord, that You have given us a new nature that can respond in obedience to You. And so we ask, Lord, that You would teach us through Your Holy Spirit what You would have us do, how You would have us represent You in this life, in this world. Lord, we love You. We thank You for being selfless in coming down from heaven and dying on our behalf so that You could reconcile our conflict with God. Because we, knew, we know, Lord, your word tells us that we're not good enough to do it. But Jesus, you are. Teach us to be like you. Teach us to live for things that matter. Things that matter to you. In order that you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.